linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And it sure is good to be back with you again. Uh, seems like it's been too long since my last podcast. But we've got uh, an interesting program today, one I think you'll get a lot out of. It's, uh, it's another recording from the Timothy Leary Archive, for which I want to thank Dennis Berry and Bruce Damer for sending it to me to podcast today. And I also want to thank uh, two fellow Saloners who have donated some of their hard-earned cash to help offset the expenses associated with producing these podcasts. And these two friends of the Salon are Guy D. and Andy W. I know it uh, takes an extra effort to remember to go to the psychedelicsalon.org webpage and uh, make a donation. And so, Guy and Andy, uh, I really appreciate your efforts and, uh, and your support. And there's one more gigantic thank you that I want to pass along, and that is to the Magic Mutt Foundation, who sent me what can only be described as a grant. Uh, this is the second grant we've received in the three and a half years of these podcasts. And I have to say that, uh, once again, I'm blown away by people's generosity and by their dedication to helping us get the true information out about our sacred medicines and getting it out to as many people as we can reach. So how do we find the others, you ask? Well, I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end of today's program, but uh, I'll tell you how I found the Magic Mutt Foundation. I went to a conference in Palenque, and on my uh, second or third day there, I sat down by the pool and started talking with a man who we affectionately call Wild Bill. And now, almost ten years later, with uh, Wild Bill on one side of this continent and me on the other, we're still in touch. And in fact, uh, we've had several grand adventures together in the interim. And then, uh, just out of the blue, I, I get this grant from the Magic Mutt Foundation, uh, which happens to be Wild Bill's new cover, I might add. And uh, that is how the psychedelic community takes care of its own. So uh, thanks again, Wild Bill. And uh, as you told me, the way to thank you is to keep these podcasts coming your way as often as I can. And uh, now you have a connection with Wild Bill as well. And uh, there's always a chance you'll bump into him at Burning Man or Cosm or at the conference somewhere. And when you do, uh, you can also give him your thanks for keeping the psychedelic spirit alive. And talk about keeping the spirit alive. I've noticed that uh, several of our fellow Saloners are now linking to our site. And uh, I also appreciate your help. Each of us, uh, in our own ways, are uh, doing what we can to help spread the word about our worldwide community of psychedelic thinkers, us average people who are just trying to figure out a few better ways to live our short lives on this beautiful little planet. We're all in this together, you know, and uh, I can't think of another group I'd rather make my stand with. But since life is so short, uh, I'd better get on with today's program, which is an interview uh, with Dr. Timothy Leary. This tape uh, is from the Leary Archive, as I said, and it was uh, noted that the person asking the questions was Elsonite Thompson and that the interview took place in the San Francisco Bay Area sometime in January of 1966. Now, in this interview, Tim doesn't mention the fact that uh, on January 3rd, which must have only been a week or so earlier, Ken Kesey and the Merry Pranksters, along with their house band, The Grateful Dead, conducted the first of their famous acid tests at the Fillmore. 
So uh, the LSD vibe was already in the Bay Area air on the day of this interview. And uh, now I think that as we listen to this, it's uh, also important to keep in mind when you hear him describe things like uh, the light show they're about to put on, that this is 1966 technology. Uh, there were no personal computers or lasers back then, but uh, what he is describing was actually a, a state-of-the-art multimedia experience for the time. So now let's pretend that uh, we are back in the first month of 1966. And I know that'll be difficult for some of you because you weren't here then. <laughs> but uh, back then, the war in Vietnam is just now heating up. Segregation is still the law in much of the land. The threat of a sudden nuclear war is constantly being talked about. And uh, the baby boomers are just entering college. Now, uh, let's pretend that you and I are sitting at home in the Bay Area where uh, we're uh, either in high school or college and uh, we turn on our radios and hear this Harvard professor talking about a new religion whose initials are LSD. I wonder uh, what we would have made of this back then. My guess is that uh, for at least some of the people who heard Dr. Leary that night, well, for them, it was probably the beginning of what we now call the 60s. One of the uh, predictions you'll hear Dr. Leary make in a few minutes was uh, that within a year or so, anywhere from one-third to two-thirds of all the kids in school, that's high school and college, would be presented with an opportunity to try LSD and or cannabis. Now, I don't know if uh, that happened or not, but I do know that uh, many historians say that uh, what they mean by the 60s was a period that actually began around 1967. Now, one thing I do know about that part of the country around that time is that there was a lot of really good acid going around back then. So uh, now try to clear your mind of everything that you know about the 60s and about psychedelics and pretend that you're a, a novice about all this stuff. And uh, now let's turn on our January 1966 radios and join Dr. Timothy Leary. Well, what brings you to the Bay Area at this particular time, Dr. Leary? Of course, I'm an old Bay Area resident. I still own a home, as a matter of fact, in Berkeley, so I consider that when I come back here, I'm uh, not uh, completely a visitor. The reason I'm coming right now is uh, that um, January 27th and 28th, we are going to bring our psychedelic religious celebration to uh, Berkeley in San Francisco. Well, now, what, um, what would that mean? Well, uh... You, you, it's referred to, I believe, as a concert. Oh, no. Isn't it? No. no. Well, uh, somebody used that phrase in describing it, and I wondered no. uh, what that could mean. Well, let me uh, backtrack a bit uh, to put this in context. As you probably know, uh, three months ago, we formed a new religion called League for Spiritual Discovery. Uh, like every other religion, we uh, have our own sacramental methods and our own goals. And uh, we practice the religion in small groups privately. But like other religious groups, we have our public uh, educational and demonstration uh, ceremonies, which we call celebrations. And the private ones are the esoteric side of the situation, uh, yes. I gather. Uh, and the public ones are, uh, as all religions have been, translated for the masses. Uh, or not so much the masses as the non-initiated or the non-communicants. This, of course, is the... This may sound strange to uh, uh, Americans, but actually it's the most orthodox uh, form of religion. And indeed, it's not that 
much different from the way that, for example, uh, the Catholic Church or the Jewish religion operates. You have your sacramental services, which are reserved to the communicants, and then you present to the public uh, what your aspirations are, and you try to show people what you're discovering. So for the last three months in New York City, every Tuesday night we've been running what we call psychedelic religious celebrations. Could you tell me something about them in, in, uh, in more detail? I think there are a number of people in our audience who have some concept of what the psychedelic experience uh, is, and uh, I'd like you to speak fairly directly to uh, what you do. Yes, well, thousands of years men have been having what we now call psychedelic experiences, mystics, visionaries, uh, far-out uh, artists and poets. And after you have this experience, uh, you struggle, you hunger to communicate it, uh, mainly, of course, for yourself. It's a way of reminding yourself what it was, but also to communicate to your fellow men. We think that every uh, religious group uh, in its origin uh, struggled to start a new art. And indeed, you can uh, test the validity of any new religion by the art that it creates, uh, because words, after all, are a uh, fragile freight for uh, carrying the deepest impulses of man. So like other religions in the past, we have developed our own art form. Rather, it is automatically developed. Psychedelic art is the uh, public face or the communication device of our new religion. Now, what, do, what is psychedelic art? Psychedelic art is uh, multi-energy. Instead of uh, using one uh, form of light or of movie or of uh, slides, we will have... Uh, uh, up to 26 uh, slide projectors and motion picture cameras or projectors going on one huge cinemascope screen. The screen is undulating with cellular forms and uh, changing patterns, stroboscopic flashes, and swimming in and out of this uh, Niagara of uh, visual uh, uh, material are what we call mythic forms. It's as though your own uh, protein memory banks, your genetic code is being decoded and uh, these millions of file cards that have been uh, uh, um, stored for thousands of years begin to flash. Uh, each week in our celebration we reenact or we renew one of the great ancient religious uh, stories. Uh, we've just finished doing the reincarnation of Jesus Christ. In the present time we're doing the illumination of the Buddha. These great religious figures of the past uh, are men who have been turned on and who have uh, worked out a new metaphor for stating the uh, uh, the divine plan or the way things are and we seek to uh, use modern methods uh, electronic and uh, multimedia uh, to turn on the audience literally do you use sound oh yes we use uh, up to uh, six or eight sources of sound some live and uh, some tapes we'll have uh, four and five tapes going uh, at one time for example well now uh, what is the net result of this in terms of what you expect the members of your audience uh, to do. Is this um, to encourage them uh, to use LSD or is it to uh, encourage them to reach some kind of uh, expanded level of awareness without such use? Because uh, whether or not psychedelic um, aids were invoked, it is obviously true that all the great religious uh, teachers were aware 
in a quite different way of the reality around them uh, than the average uh, human being. They had altered perception. Is this something you simply want people to accept as being a fact? Is it something you feel all people should experience? What, uh, you know, what, how, what's the implementation here? Well, as I said before, the aims and goals of our religion are highly orthodox. We seek to find the divinity within, call that what you will. But it's been well known for thousands of years that man can focus his microscope inside and uh, turn on to uh, energies and revelations which are built into your nervous system and your cells. Your body is an instrument of communication which has been around for two billion years, and it's, there's a lot to learn from it. Now, the, uh, we don't uh, want other people necessarily to use our sacraments, LSD and marijuana. We're not advocating the use of these. And in our celebrations, which we'll be putting on January 27th and 28th here in the Bay Area, there'll be no attempt to uh, uh, urge people to use drugs. We are uh, attempting to get people to turn inside, to look within and to turn on. And we don't care what sacrament people uh, use. Uh, throughout human history, the human race has used the most incredible variety of techniques for turning on. Uh, they've used flagellation and dance. They've used immobility, solitude, noise, uh, some... Uh, meditation. Exactly, meditation, fasting, uh, sacra sacramental foods. The, the interesting thing is that, that man's uh, uh, attempt to turn on just uh, staggers the imagination. It's hardly anything that hasn't been used one time or another in one culture or another to get this experience. And often the, the most obvious, opposite things have been used. It's well known that overstimulation and noise and crowds is one way of uh, flipping you out of your external mind within. On the other hand, silence and silence. Mobs, in other Mobs, words. Mobs, yes, or chanting, or you get a large group together and you get a kind of a hypnotic effect. Uh, sexual uh, renunciation is one method. On the other hand, ritual use of sex, where the mates become gods and goddesses for each other, is another uh, uh, of course, throughout human history, men have used uh, chemicals, plants, vines, roots. Uh, wine itself was originally a sacramental uh, method of turning people on. So we, we don't care what method people use. Uh, we treasure and uh, glorify any method that can get you high, that is, can uh, turn you on. But uh, we also insist that uh, no one um, uh, tell us we can't use our sacrament uh, if it seems to work for us. Well, now... There are a number of aspects of this that uh, I would like to uh, ask some fairly uh, frank questions about. I have heard it stated, and with some uh, understanding, that some of the people who uh, become involved with the use of LSD, uh, that it becomes a sort of dead end. Uh, in other words, here is an, is an experience which is uh, highly stimulating, and uh, extremely uh, exciting in the deepest sense uh -huh. of the word. Uh, and the repetition of that experience, the sort of going off in a corner, as it were, uh, mentally and spiritually, uh, becomes some kind of an end in itself. I've heard it stated that uh, quite a number of creative people, for example, who have gotten into this, uh, no longer um, produce. Now, uh, I'm going to pose uh, a theory, namely that the um, proper use of such uh, awareness uh, is 
bound up with what you bring back Absolutely. and implement in the society uh, around you, and that it, uh, as everything can be abused, so could these methods of hyper-awareness be abused, and in fact have been abused, because I presume that black magic uh, is exactly uh, <coughs> using the same powers. And uh, I have the, the uh, idea uh, that uh, no one creates, either in their life or in any visual outward sense, without submitting themselves to some kind of discipline, either their own or some higher discipline to which they are prepared to submit. Now, where along this line does the... Uh, the creative, in in sense of our society, in sense of the word the yeah. world that we live in, how do you tie this all in? Well, you've raised several points, and I find myself in complete agreement with each point as I uh, followed uh, what you just said. Uh, number one, the internal experience cannot be the final goal. Of course, monastics and people in my profession, shamans and uh, 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 alchemists and people who have attempted to change consciousness for thousands of years have debated this point. As a matter of fact, in uh, Southeast Asia, there are two schools of Buddhism. Northern Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, says exactly what you've just said. Uh, it's one thing to turn on, but then you've got to uh, come back to society and uh, make it uh, show in your behavior. There's another school of Buddhism, as most of your listeners probably know, Southern Buddhism, which says, no, just stay high all the time. Uh, any, anything is a trap in the way of going back to society. Well, uh, we, are, uh, we belong to the school which uh, believes that uh, by your fruits you shall be known. It's inconceivable to us that people could take LSD regularly and not be driven to come back to society and to try to glorify or to uh, express uh, what they have learned. Uh, and what is it that you think they have learned? Well, it's highly individual, obviously. Uh, and of course, uh, you, you mentioned the misuse of LSD. That's obvious. Uh, every form of energy that man has invented has been misused. I think the auto engine is misused. I think uh, even radio and television is uh, misused by most other stations. Uh, it's too much to ask that our new form of energy, which is released by LSD, is going to immediately uh, uh, cause everyone to become an ecstatic and productive saint. Uh, on the other hand, uh, uh, all we can do is say over and over again in every lecture and every performance uh, that we give to the public that discipline and training and uh, a conscientious attempt to uh, express productively uh, is the uh, inevitable uh, result of your LSD experience. And I think that's one of the tragedies, that many people take LSD and are so entranced and delighted by this internal world that they, uh, they just turn off the external world. And uh, this inevitably leads to tragedy, because you just can't stir up all this energy and get so many ideas flashing uh, without uh, harnessing it up. And if you don't do that, then you get this endless rumination and you get the so-called LSD freakout where the person is just spinning around in his own mind. Uh, the motto of our religion is turn on, tune in, and drop out. Uh, turn on, of course, means uh, contact these internal possibilities. Tune in means harness it back in works of art, in works of beauty, in works of uh, harmony. 
so I couldn't agree with you more uh, when you make these comments about... And what's the dropout? Well, uh, this is an easily misinterpreted phrase. Uh, by dropout, we uh, mean drop out of meaningless activities. We don't mean drop out of life. We don't mean drop out of the uh, uh, really meaningful uh, behaviors. We're convinced, and I think it wouldn't be hard to, uh, to prove my point, that uh, most Americans are involved in a meaningless uh, robot uh, assembly line a series of activities. They don't really know what they're doing or why they're doing it, but they, they just uh, push down to this uh, assembly line and off they go. Uh, we tell people uh, to drop out. This is the oldest message of visionary prophets, which happens to be my profession. Uh, uh, my, my trade union has always come back to society and said, look, uh, detach yourself from the uh, immediate tribal and be very careful uh, how you spend your time and in what sort of activity you uh, uh, dedicate your energies. So by drop out, we don't mean just to sit around and uh, grow a beard and uh, discuss uh, the ultimates in philosophy. We mean uh, drop out of the meaningless and tune in to uh, the um, productive. We live, uh, for example, in a uh, large estate in uh, upper New York. There are 60 of us who have dropped out of American society. We think we have our own country there. In addition to starting our own religion, we start our own country, and we leave our little uh, plot of land. I consider I'm going back to uh, the planet Earth and to the United States uh, in, a, in a friendly message of uh, uh, communication. And uh, we are trying to develop their pilot study of how man can drop out, how Americans can drop out of the robot aspects of our society and tune back into the more basic human activities, which are familial, which are tribal, and which are involved in individual acts of uh, beauty rather than um, uh, huge mass uh, movements of uh, power and efficiency. Well, how do you um, solve the practical uh, side of life? Because one of the things which has always um, <coughs> struck me about Western society is that unless you're, um, well, practically, I guess, unless you're involved with the Catholic Church, uh, no matter how much a human being might wish to devote themselves to the good of uh, the world, uh, there are not very many uh, channels for this, you see. Now, in India, uh, for example, uh, it's quite customary yes. that a person works productively for a certain number of years, and then they simply pack up and disappear into the great uh, sea of uh, life. And <coughs> somehow or another, their society, however uh, meagerly, is geared to accept this, and to do something about the survival of these people because society feels that these people in their own odd way uh, have um, great value. Uh, what do you, uh, supposing anyone were involved in the process of dropping out, uh, uh, what do they do to survive? Well, there are two ways this has been done throughout human history. One is the way you suggest, and that's not just Indian. See, the Catholic Church, as you point out yes, today, quite supports uh, thousands and thousands of monastics. Uh, and did all during the yes. medieval and, and uh, the Dark Age period exactly. and so on, and acted without any question as the carrier of the culture, yeah. uh, and uh, a culture that practically inevitably would have died without that concentration yeah. of, uh, of power uh, 
at the given point. I think you're going to see a return to uh, this tradition in the United States today. Our country is now so affluent and we have the problem of leisure. I think that we're going to be able to tolerate in the future more and more Americans dropping out for uh, uh, a limited space of time, perhaps for a longer space of time. It's no longer an economic problem if uh, several million Americans just retire to uh, uh, a life of meditation and contemplation. But that's not... It wouldn't be if they were accepted by the society. Yeah. It would be for the millions of Americans who did it if they did well, it tomorrow, Well, the Protestant for Purit Puritan ethic... You see, it was the Protestant Church which knocked out the monistic tradition. The Protestant Church glorifies work, virtue, and money in the bank. And we're licking that, and that's one of the campaigns we have going to uh, teach Americans that the Protestant ethic just doesn't work anymore, and we're going to have to tolerate more people uh, dropping out and following the spiritual life. But that's not the real uh, central solution that we see. Uh, there's another, there's a second way in which people have dropped out in the past, and I would cite the men who founded this country, uh, the pilgrims and the different groups who dropped out of England. They said to, uh, to the fellows over there, we don't like your establishment, and we're going to drop out of it, and they climbed in leaky boats and came over here, and they started their own tribal culture, uh, which is essentially what it was, and they worked hard, and they uh, built up their own uh, economic uh, uh, system, and uh, that's how America was founded. We're returning in our little colony in Millbrook to the original American uh, formula. Now, we can't climb in leaky boats and find an island someplace because our, our globe is uh, no longer open. So we have uh, gone up to uh, upper New York State, and we've done as the pilgrims have done. We've set up our own economic uh, community. We can support ourselves. And surprisingly enough, when you think about it, there are many ways in which small groups who want it, who just can't take this society uh, in its industrial uh, computer sense, can support themselves. Because as uh, our society in its lemming-like rush to the cities uh, uh, <laughs> gets into this mass, you know, urban insanity, there are enormous vacuums and gaps that are left uh, where thoughtful people can move back into the country and uh, uh, make a. Um, make a way of life. See, one thing that a machine culture can't do, they can't really please the senses. Uh, it's very hard for a machine-made uh, object to uh, uh, do what uh, works of art is supposed to do, really delight the hands and delight the eye and uh, delight the body. So that in many, each of these groups that uh, drops out of society in the next five or six years, ten years, is going to have to work out its own economic uh, method. They're going to have to have a, establish a favorable balance of exchange with a larger society. And if you're not competent enough and creative enough to do that, you're not ready to drop out. See, our motto is turn on. You have to get the revelation first. After you've turned on, tune it back in in acts of uh, production and uh, beauty. Then you're ready to, to drop out. And if you're not uh, creative enough and free enough, and if your LSD sessions haven't given you enough uh, real meaning uh, uh, that you can do this, then you obviously uh, haven't learned your LSD lesson and you're not ready to drop out. Well, it still seems to me, uh, observing the uh, scene around me, uh, that uh, there is some danger here, and you have talked about this earlier in this conversation, uh, of people, particularly very young people, uh, who do not perhaps bring enough experience, enough suffering, enough knowledge to this process, where the simple use of LSD 
uh, could be highly fraught with danger. Yes, uh, I deplore the uh, social reality of hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of uh, uh, high school uh, and uh, college students taking LSD and not knowing what they're uh, opening up. On the other hand, it's also a social reality that they're going to do it. Uh, uh, just like the automobile is here and it can be misused, the kids are going to use alcohol, they're going to use uh, any form of energy around, uh, they are going to use LSD. I see the current younger generation as, an, as a transition generation. Uh, we gave them a world which was meaningless. Uh, they're trying to uh, salvage the best that they can from it. And we should be very patient with this younger generation. And the only solution, of course, is training and uh, education and preparation. And uh, that's why we're bringing our celebrations uh, to the West Coast. Our celebrations are not entertainments, although we hope they're entertaining. They're mainly didactic. We're trying to show people what the LSD... Uh, experience is. We're trying to show people how to use it. It's quite didactic in the sense that each celebration takes up different sense organs and different levels of consciousness. At times I get very dry in my sermon explaining to people what they're seeing on the screen. Uh, training and uh, discipline and uh, of course suffering is part of any uh, yoga. And I want to say this about LSD. Uh, sometimes people think that um, LSD is just pure ecstasy. It's not. There's uh, nothing in life that doesn't have the other side to the coin. And uh, as you leave your tribal mind with its uh, narrow limits and open up these other possibilities, uh, there's just as much uh, uh, potentiality for fear as there is for delight. And that's where the training comes in, how to handle the fear and how to uh, uh, not let it bowl you over and uh, how to harness these energies. You speak... Um repeatedly of the internal experience uh, of uh, LSD, uh, meaning, I presume, the working out within the human being of whatever expansion of consciousness uh, he uh, is achieved. Uh, but it, it is also true uh, that this has a, a very um, uh, incredible effect on the physical plane and on all of the sensory uh, oh, exactly. processes. That's what I mean by internal. See, <laughs> uh, That's why I wanted yeah. to clarify. The uh, uh, Western man has been so deceived by his priests and by his uh, bureaucratic institutional uh, religions. Uh, most of the great gospels and teachings of the past are absolutely correct except that our priests have externalized them. When Christ said, uh, Seek ye the kingdom of heaven, it is within, uh, he meant that literally. It's within your body. Uh, the aim of our religion is to ask man to come to his senses. You have to learn how to use your sense organs and how to deal with the energies which inundate your, the retina of your eye and the delicate membrane of your ear. Uh, you have to go out of your mind to come to your senses. Uh, you have to learn how to resurrect your body. Uh, Christ meant that literally, that uh, the revelation is in tissue. The revelation is in cell. And uh, this is what we learned from LSD. And uh, we're not uh, inventing an imaginary soul inside. Uh, to me, the soul, uh, one aspect of the soul is a genetic code, which is a tiny little strand of protein which has the entire blueprint and memory of two billion, billion years of uh, life on this planet. These are the exciting territories that you can get into if you know what you're doing uh, with LSD. I have always suspected that either um, the great uh, religious uh, teachers were completely uh, irrelevant or else what they said was not um, 
some kind of uh, pious hope, but in fact an observation of fact. Exactly. That's something else that most Americans and Westerners don't realize, that the science of consciousness is just as regular, just as lawful, and just as complicated as the science of energies outside. One of the early mottos of my profession uh, uh, was uh, her hermetic code. It was on the Emerald Tablet of Hermes back in Alexandria. It says, what is without is within. That's simply reminding us that there's no energy transformation that you find outside around you that isn't uh, recorded in protein uh, historical records inside your body. Uh, even uh, when it comes to space exploration, as I have taken LSD and hurtled around inside inner space, there are all sorts of un unidentified flying objects in the metaphorical sense that uh, whiz by your, uh, your um, projectors. Uh, all of the uh, political and all of the um, uh, scientific problems of the external world uh, have been worked out over and over again by your cells and your tissues. And uh, unless you get into some contact with this, we think that you're uh, really kind of a, a robot just being pushed around and reacting to external forces. In what uh, role uh, and at what level of that role do you visualize yourself, Dr. Larry? Well, I've given a great deal of thought to that. Um, uh, I think as I read history, and of course in my profession, which is religious teacher or shaman, you have to look back. We have our tradition, just like the physicist knows about Einstein and Bohr and Newton. Uh, I have studied the earlier adepts in my profession, which is the changing of consciousness. I don't think we're ever going to have any more holy men or any more messiahs, and I hope we're not going to have any more martyrs. You see, uh, a thousand years ago, if someone stumbled on a new method of turning on, Maybe it was the Buddha over in India. His, his original method was the sit-down. He sat under that tree and uh, <laughs> stayed there till he the sit-in. Uh, he, he found a method, and he came back, and he taught it. Well, by the time that method and that uh, the name of the Buddha reached the Mediterranean, it was maybe a hundred years. Slave galleys and uh, folk singers, and uh, it's always the young and the lower class and the alienated that carry the message. By the time it got over the Mediterranean, uh, the Buddha was perhaps uh, two or three generations dead. So then you set him up as a, a special person who had a virgin birth or a miraculous death and so forth. That's not true. Uh, he was just a human being struggling to find meaning the way the rest of us are. Now, in, in, the, uh, in the present technological age, you see, <laughs> that's never going to happen. When we announced the formation of our religion in New York uh, three months ago at 10 o'clock in the morning, by 10.10 uh, 10, it was on the news ticker in London, and 10.15 it was on the news ticker in Tokyo, and probably 10.17 it was on the news ticker in Peiping, and they were wondering, oh my, what are they doing over there now? Uh, there's no more room for a mythological... Uh, uh, supernatural uh, religious teachers. Uh, I'm simply an American of uh, Irish descent with all of the uh, faults and virtues of my time and culture, struggling for meaning, and we have got a method which works for those people who, uh, who know how to use it, so that uh, I don't see myself as uh, a historical figure in this old sense. Uh, we're not going to have any of these uh, legendary... Uh, 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 Messiah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think that uh, religion in the future is going to be much more personal. Uh, every man should start his own religion. That's my advice to young people today. Don't think it was all done 2,000 years ago or 500 years ago. The great challenge of human life is really to found your own religion. That means you personally 
cast off your tribal mind and come to uh, real tissue and fleshly grip with these ancient problems and you hammer out your own ethical code on your tablets of whatever they are you become your own Copernicus uh, you probe these mysteries yourself and come out with your own answers now you're going to come out with pretty much the same answers that Christ and the Buddha uh, came up with because that's the science of it uh, there are certain basic truths but you can't take them uh, in cliche static form nobody can pass on these truths to anyone else or they're just meaningless formula you have to uh, have your dark night of the soul, you have to have your LSD flip out, you have to wonder what's real, who am I, and then slowly you're going to have to recapitulate the uh, evolution history of, uh, of the human race yourself. And that's what the challenge of LSD is. And uh, come out with your own uh, prayers, your own rituals, uh, which work for you and your family and perhaps a few friends. That's the excitement of it. Uh, and uh, we deplore the, uh, the mask conformity of most religions today which become just like uh, General Motors and NBC television. You mention repeatedly the <coughs> universe as being contained within each body. Uh, has your uh, group any attitude about uh, the universe when not contained within a body? <laughs> You're asking about immortality. Uh, whenever that question comes up, I know the conversation is getting to a higher and higher level. We're no longer talking about danger and uh, the, uh, the social problem of one generation of Americans uh, struggling for a new social order. Well, it can't uh, yeah. have failed to occur to you. Right, Larry. yeah. Uh, that's a good sign that the interview is progressing nicely. <laughs> now, we have no answers to the question of immortality. It seems, uh, and of course, each person has to work this out himself. I don't think that my body, uh, with my appendectomy and my gold tooth and my uh, uh, graying hair, is going to uh, reappear in a new uh, in a new afterlife. Um, the words of, an, of another great member of my profession, uh, Saint Thomas. Uh, come to mind. He said, uh, why do ye ask about the end when you have not found the beginning? If you find the beginning, then you realize that questions about immortality are game questions. They're chessboard questions. Does a tree ask about uh, immortality? Does, uh, does, uh, does the honeybee ask those questions? No, because the, they're tuned in. They know exactly where they came from. They know where they are in the entire process, and they realize that the process goes on and that immortality is really turning on and uh, locating yourself in this timeless process. Once you've really had this experience, uh, this classic visionary mystic experience, when you're really tuned into the entire picture, uh, you don't worry about immortality anymore. You've had it. Uh, you, you've, uh, you know you're, you're immortal right this second. Uh, even though... Uh, if you are ever going to be. Right. Even though your body is wearing out and uh, you have to face the fact that... Uh, the whole universe is going to end. That's the, the beauty of some of these ancient Indian myths which make perfect LSD sense. Uh, they talk about cycles of history and cycles of evolution. Uh, Vishnu uh, goes through all the reincarnations and then he goes to sleep for several billion years and then he wakes up again. These are the cycles of nature, of, uh, of uh, growing and dying, of uh, light and darkness. And uh, there is an immortal sense or a cyclical sense to this, which uh, really satisfies me much more than the notion that my body, with its particular scars and uh, <laughs> uh, uh, stigmata, <laughs> will be uh, around again in, a, in another circle. 
Well, of course, there have been religions which believed that it, that the uh, physical resurrection of the body was not an essential uh, part of this uh, process of uh, immortality. So uh, the gold tooth wouldn't necessarily have to come along with it. <laughs> but uh, we certainly believe in the soul, and uh, the closest definition we give to the soul is a genetic code. That's an invisible, uh, ancient, uh, uh, incredibly intelligent blueprinting apparatus with enormous power to spin off bodies the way Detroit assembly lines spin out uh, new models of cars, and uh, which is a, almost a timeless process. And uh, we literally uh, think that man's nervous system can decode the genetic code. After all, the genetic code produced our nervous system and is in touch with it that way. Why can't we... Uh, contact it the other way. Well, uh, in the uh, some of the uh, Eastern religions, at least, uh, the one of the things, if I have understood it, which arises is whether or not the sense of personal identity is maintained throughout this process. <coughs> and that, I think, is something which... Uh, causes considerable concern right. to uh, many people. And if, again, if I have understood it properly, uh, there is a very uh, widespread school of mystic thought which uh, believes that simply all is one all yep. the time. Right. It is just yep. a question of recognizing the interrelatedness of, of all life. And that this totality yeah. is what is uh, the reality, rather than the narrowing down to of, one, of uh, the, this particular century. focus yeah. point, yeah. focal point, which yeah. is what you conceive to be you. Yeah. Well, of course, uh, that's where the science of uh, internal exploration is very uh, convincing once you study the ancient texts. All of the great visionary mystic philosophers, East and West, come up with the same data, that it's all one process, and if you can just throw off your tribal mind and uh, participate in this greater flow, uh, you'll see that. Now, by <laughs> see, the, the embarrassing thing uh, about the human mind is that 99.99% uh, of your nervous system, which is your seat of consciousness, doesn't know that you exist, or doesn't know, in my case, that Timothy Leary exists. Uh, now this and is, couldn't care less. And couldn't care less with our little problems of uh, ambition and uh, status and so forth. All that uh, they're concerned with is that we keep the universe alive and going. And, of course, we're basically seed carriers. From the standpoint of the genetic code, we're here to uh, carry on the flame of life. Now, here's where we get into the LSD psychosis or the LSD freakout. For several years now, we have defined... Of course, we think that psychiatry is our uh, modern uh, devil inquisition. Psychiatrists don't know what psychosis is and have no cure for it. Sure, they can load you up with tranquilizers and make you uh, neat and tidy in the back ward, but psychiatry has not come up with the answer to psychosis. But we use this word psychosis the way we use the word devil uh, or devil possession or witchcraft two or three, four or five hundred years ago. Uh, now, the LSD psychosis or the LSD panic, we think, is a religious crisis. And it comes exactly and routinely this way, that the uh, person takes LSD and suddenly discovers that 99% of his nervous system doesn't know or care about him. 
Then he begins to scream. Where's Shattuck Avenue? Where's the University of California? Where's Timothy Leary? And your nervous system is inundating uh, your consciousness with these uh, enigmatic, smiling, cellular transformations. Uh, never heard of Timothy Leary. Nope. Never heard of Berkeley. What's all that about? Uh, it's the language of tissue in this relentless, beautiful but in execrable uh, process of uh, life which is uh, going on inside of you that becomes frightening. And then people scream, get me back, get me back. Uh, uh, the, the tragedy is that uh, the LSD panic today is seen as a psychiatric problem. And of course the psychiatrist can't deal with a person whose ontological crisis is occurring or whose sense of reality is distorted. Uh, you can't uh, use logic uh, to talk to a two billion year old energy process that's uh, uh, Converting things into a cellular flow. The tragedy is that the LSD panic person is uh, dragged off to a mental hospital and treated as a nut. And then uh, this can result in uh, several weeks of uh, confusion and uh, depression and anxiety. Our recommendation is to, um, to see the LSD experience as life itself uh, uh, is a religious quest, a religious uh, confrontation, and uh, not as a psychiatric pathological situation. Well, what will your advice be to uh, these uh, younger uh, people who, uh, who are experimenting, uh, whether anyone likes it or not, uh, with these uh, forms? Uh, under what circumstances and with what type of help and supervision uh, should they approach what you feel to be a very profound and important uh, experience. Well, uh, we, we say prepare yourself for a spiritual experience, uh, find a guru or a spiritual teacher and uh, study with him and uh, have him guide you through your uh, visionary experience and have your uh, LSD session in a shrine in a place completely devoted to the uh, spiritual quest. Uh, of course, nobody can do this today because we don't have any gurus and we don't have shrines and people take LSD in apartments in uh, the North Beach or uh, apartments in Berkeley, which is not the best place to have a uh, mind-rending uh, confrontation. Uh, uh, we have, for the last seven years, been training people in Mexico, uh, in Millbrook, in our summer sessions, and in our psychedelic celebrations, training people how to understand and uh, approach this uh, really awesome experience. When one other thing that I always say when I have a chance uh, to talk to the public is a word to the um, parents uh, who are concerned about their children. Now, the brute statistical reality is that in an urban center like this, uh, almost every young person is going to be confronted with marijuana or LSD in the next year or two. And a high percentage, which varies from one-third up to two-thirds, depending on the uh, college or the high school, will actually uh, take LSD or marijuana. Now, the tendency of the law enforcement officers is to try to get parents to become policemen, just like Cuba or China or... Uh, Germany to get the uh, uh, parents to inform on their uh, kids and to do detective work on their children. Th this just appalls us. My advice to parents is uh, that you should, uh, what's really uh, scaring you is the breakdown between you and your kids in the way of realized communication. And instead of uh, swilling your martinis and your uh, 
uh, cocktails and then uh, uh, calling your kids uh, dope addicts, uh, sit down quietly and ask your youngsters why they're interested in taking marijuana and what they've learned and uh, find out what other kids are experiencing and uh, make it a family uh, venture of uh, study and exploration. And then I say, after two or three months of this uh, discussion and research and talking to people, if you and your kids uh, think that this is a risk worth taking, do it together. One of the keys to our religious um, approach, social, is to bring the family back together. And in Millbrook right now, we have uh, about uh, eight families who are LSD families who live together, husband, wife, and children. They take LSD together. Uh, bonds of uh, union and communication and uh, family meaning uh, develop, which uh, I think have been lost in uh, much of American um, institutional life. No government agency is going to solve our spiritual problems. Uh, I say to the parents, no government agency is going to stop your children from exploring uh, consciousness. Uh, this is your problem of communication and collaboration and mutual understanding with your kids. Sit down and talk to them, and when the time comes, let your kids turn you on. That's my message to the uh, middle-aged, middle-class, whiskey-drinking, suburban American family. Well, uh... I've heard uh, some of the young people uh, say that uh, when under the influence of uh, marijuana or uh, LSD that, uh, uh, you know, that it's perfectly all right to, for example, careen around, drive a car and do this kind of thing. What would your response to that be? Well, uh, that's just <laughs> ridiculous and inconceivable uh, that anyone would take uh, these powerful consciousness-changing chemicals and careen around in bowling alleys or in cars or motorcycles. Uh, sure, if you want to bowl or careen around the car, do it. But uh, the essence of the marijuana or the LSD experience is that you're opening up these internal uh, possibilities. Uh, it, it, it makes no more sense to me that someone would take LSD and drive a car than on the height of your honeymoon you would be making love in an automobile. Sure, you can do it, but uh, that's a ridiculous waste of a sacred moment. Uh, it, it, it's just a sign of bad training. Uh, people don't know what they're doing, what they're getting into. As a matter of fact, we urge people, of course, I never urge anyone to take LSD or marijuana. That's the, your last frontier of personal choice, what you do with your nervous system. But if you're going to uh, take LSD or marijuana, select a place that uh, will, uh, will tap uh, the highest aesthetic and spiritual possibilities. Never take LSD in the city. Never take LSD in an apartment. Uh, uh, go out to the country and uh, take time. Uh, set up an environment which is beautiful and which will uh, 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 elevate you. And uh, then there'll be no problem with LSD freakouts or uh, uh, anguish in the streets. Well, now, what do you feel your practical front is like in uh, relation to uh, what you are doing? Uh, do you have difficulty with the authorities in New York, and do you expect uh, further uh, difficulties? What do you feel well, the attitude of course. Uh, see, my profession as spiritual teacher with a new sacrament is a risky one. Uh, throughout history, uh, people in my profession are always in a little trouble with the law. As a matter of fact, with the men whom I idolize and model myself after, 
with no implication I'm comparing myself with these people, but my ideals and my models have all been in jail uh, at best. Uh, the last four presidents of India, for example, have all spent time in jail. So jail to us uh, is not a middle-class disgrace. Uh, here I am, a former Harvard professor. I've been arrested three times in the last year. Isn't that disgraceful? To me, that just means I'm doing my job. And if I don't uh, get the establishment a little worried, I wonder uh, my message is not getting through. Every time I'm arrested, it uh, gives me a chance to spend a day with the uh, other team. I spend a oh, six, eight hours in jail until I'm bailed out, and I do with the police what I do with everyone else. Uh, I discuss with them, I argue with them, uh, they ask questions, I challenge them, and when it's all over and I leave uh, with my lawyer, I usually uh, give them a copy of one of my books and autograph it, and uh, we go back to the playing field to keep it going. Uh, this is the ancient dialogue or tension between what it belongs to Caesar and what belongs to uh, the divinity which we locate within. Now, we have a very simple uh, solution or formula to this um, old problem of uh, Caesar and God. Anything that's outside of your body, anything that moves out there in the streets, property, territory, weapons, money, and so forth, that belongs to Caesar. And you can choose the Caesar you like and vote for him or kill for him if uh, you, you're led that way. Uh, w w there must be laws, and we uh, we uh, certainly agree to uh, uh, obeying Caesar when it comes to secular, uh, uh, tangible, visible activities. But when it comes to anything that goes on inside your body, that's the kingdom of heaven for you. And I cannot let Caesar, whether he's a public health official or a narcotics policeman or one of your two gubernatorial candidates in California, I can't let them tell me uh, what uh, changes I'm going to bring about inside my own body. Uh, no one should have anything to, to say about who, what touches your body, what goes into it. Now, if, uh, taking LSD and marijuana leads me or any of my co-religionists to break any external laws. If we get into automobile accidents, or if we take off our clothes and rush through the streets screaming about the second coming, arrest us for causing a social disorder. You've got plenty of laws in this society to uh, arrest people for behavior. But when it comes to um, your body uh, and your uh, sense organs and uh, changing consciousness, uh, that's the kingdom of heaven for you. And if you let the law say anything about that, uh, that's a profanate, uh, making profane what should be sacred to you. We are now going to court. Our League for Spiritual Discovery has uh, several lawyers, and we are filing suit in the state of New York, uh, which will allow uh, the priests in our religion to uh, import and distribute uh, marijuana LSD only to our communicants in our own shrines. And that uh, case will be coming up. Yeah? That'll be coming up in the next uh, two or three months. Of course, we're asking nothing more there than the uh, Catholic priests and the uh, Jewish rabbis uh, requested of Caesar 40 years ago during that last period of legislative lunacy, which we call alcohol prohibition, when Catholic priests could import and distribute an illegal drug, namely wine, uh, only in their shrines and only to their communicants. Now, the priests didn't give cocktail parties, and when we use LSD and marijuana, we won't be uh, uh, just having turn-on sessions in the streets. And if we do that, take our license away. There's no problem uh, to society here. And the Constitution, uh, wonderfully enough, guarantees uh, this choice of conscience. Thank you very much, Dr. Larry. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
You know, I have to say that, at least in my humble opinion, the good Dr. Leary gave out uh, a lot of really great advice just now. Granted, uh, the screwheads who think they run things were terrified of his promotion of psychedelic medicines as a way to break the mental bondage we've been put in. But I didn't hear him talking about uh, dosing thousands at a time, and I didn't hear him say that it was all fun and games. Uh, he seemed very responsible to me. And did you notice uh, the question where it was insinuated that people who use LSD don't produce? In fact, uh, even the implication that not producing is somehow bad strikes me as uh, kind of funny. But we can talk about that another day. Uh, what I want to point out uh, right now is that how even in seemingly friendly interviews with Dr. Leary, the questions are often loaded to point out something possibly negative about an experience uh, that he isn't even trying to talk anyone into having, other than uh, possibly that one offhand comment he made one time about LSD providing you with a two-hour orgasm. Uh, that comment uh, may have led a few people who wouldn't have tried it otherwise to give it a, a test drive. But what I wanted to point out was that uh, here we find way back even before there was a declared war on drugs that the powers that be were already planting false information about our sacred medicines. And I can safely say the information about LSD turning someone into an unproductive person is uh, wrong because some of the most productive people in our societies have used LSD in their work including more than one Nobel Prize winner. So uh, don't let anyone tell you that these medicines will make you unproductive. You just have to read the label and use as directed. That's all. And let me uh, say one more thing about the interview we just heard, and that has to do with the fact that in some very small ways, at least it seems to me, we've actually uh, made a little progress in improving our civilization. What struck me was Dr. Leary's use of all-male terms when he was talking about historical events. For example, he said, For thousands of years now, men have been having what we call psychedelic experiences. Now, of course, we all know that it hasn't only been men who have been having these experiences. In fact, uh, some archaeologists uh, are now suggesting that it may be women who first even experimented with these interesting plants. Today, uh, at least for the most part, I find more people careful to not exclude half of the human population when making these sweeping statements. That may not seem like much of an improvement to you, but uh, just a couple of years before this interview was held, uh, I visited the city of New Orleans and rode on streetcars that had signs directing people of color to the back. And uh, there were separate drinking fountains, restrooms, hotels, and so forth. Now, granted, we still have a significant way to go before there's anything close to equal opportunities for anyone who isn't a white male in this country. But just in my lifetime, I've at least seen some slight improvement. Now, one last thing I want to mention today about Timothy Leary's work has to do with his archive. Just now, we uh, heard him talk about the pilot study his group was doing at Millbrook in regards to figuring out how to get ourselves out of this robot society we're now locked in and uh, get back to the basics of being human. And what I want to mention is that uh, all of the records of that work still exist in Dr. Leary's archive. Last year, I had the privilege of spending some time with this material and was astounded at some of the things I found. One of uh, these was an experience report written by Gary Fisher, who we've uh, hosted several times here in the salon. 
And when I told Gary about that particular checklist, he said that, uh, yes, they went to great pains to document much of what transpired there uh, during a very interesting time in the short history of the modern psychedelic movement. And it is in the preservation of that archive and several others that I would uh, like to talk about very briefly right now. In addition to uh, Dr. Leary's archive, I've looked through many boxes of letters, books, experience reports, and other papers uh, from some of the other early psychedelic pioneers. And uh, right now, the great majority of this important material is languishing in cardboard boxes that are in various storage sheds all up and down the West Coast. On another track, uh, there's also some movement along the lines of establishing a center for the study of psychedelic medicine at one of the major universities out here. A dream of mine is to find a way to secure all of these precious physical records in a permanent archive associated with uh, such a center uh, with the additional proviso, of course, that the majority of these records also be digitized and made available on the Internet. The reason I feel so passionate about preserving these resources is that as minuscule as they are, uh, they now represent a, a small stake in the ground from which we can begin to recover some of the information and wisdom that has been lost in regards to these sacred medicines over the millennia. If you read uh, Paul Devereaux's brilliant book, uh, The Long Trip, A Prehistory of Psychedelia, you'll come away with a very clear understanding of how deeply intertwined the human psyche is with these plants and chemicals. We now know that uh, from the late Stone Age until about a thousand years ago, that the use of psychedelic plants and medicine was a significant part of virtually every culture on Earth. And so, uh, how did all of this ancient knowledge disappear, you might ask? Well, uh, we just heard another recounting of how it was uh, the monks in the Catholic monasteries who, as this interviewer just said, acted, without any question, as the carrier of the culture, and that without those Catholic monks, the culture would have died. Well, guess what? Thanks to those Catholic monks and their inquisitor friends who followed, all traces of shamanism, witchcraft, astrology, medicine work, and uh, all of those ancient traditions were systematically stamped out by the church in its ongoing lust for world domination. And uh, since some people learn from history, when the U.S. of A. decided to uh, challenge the church in the world domination game, it learned that suppression of these sacred plants was one of the keys to subduing the population, because without these sacred medicines, people just can't think for themselves. And so uh, the governments of the world have now declared that we shall not be allowed to eat of this fruit of the tree of knowledge because they know that an awakened populace isn't going to stand for things as they've been for far too long now. But I digress. Uh, the original point I was trying to make is that we should all take responsibility for preserving the cultural objects of our psychedelic society. I hear that uh, early next year, Allison and Alex Gray will be moving into their own permanent chapel of sacred mirrors, where uh, some of our community's precious art will be preserved in a location where a great number of people will be able to experience it in person. So that is uh, one huge step in the positive direction of bringing our culture more into the arena of public awareness, and hopefully uh, we'll be able to do something similar with all of these important archives out here. So stay tuned, and I'll be talking more about this in future podcasts. Now, even though I've once again gone a little long, there are 
still a couple of emails I'd like to read parts of. And uh, the first one comes from Phil, who says, and uh, and maybe this is from one of the forums that I picked it up on. Uh, I'm not sure. But anyhow, here's what Phil says. Dear Lorenzo, my dilemma is that I have no contacts in Australia who share our common interest. Can you provide me with some, or at least somewhere I can begin my own search to find them? In this message, I can't convey how and why I am so desperate to make contact with like minds, but I think you will understand. I look forward to hearing from you, or even from other Aussies who may read this. Cheers, Phil. Well, as we all know, uh, finding the others uh, sure isn't very easy. But one place I'd start if I were you is to uh, begin listening to BB's Bungalow each month. You can find her podcast over at dopefiend.co.uk, along with uh, quite a few other of my favorites. But uh, BB is also from Down Under, and uh, you may be able to pick up a few clues when you hear her mention a band or clubs or something. Also, uh, if you can get to Melbourne on December 6th of this year, which is 2008, in case you're listening to this in another year, uh, but uh, and that's possible with these podcasts, of course. Anyway, on uh, December 6, 2008, at the Copeland Theater at Melbourne University, there's a conference titled Entheogenesis Australis. According to their uh, website, uh, which is www.entheo.net, Entheogenesis Australis, EGA, is a not-for-profit association that exists to create a supportive environment that fosters mature, open discussion about psychoactive plants and chemicals. We seek to explore ways to assess societal impacts and examine the positive applications of plant-based psychoactives and empathogens. So, uh, why don't some of you Aussies surf over to their website and uh, see if maybe you can find a few of the others. Now, uh, let's see, there's a couple more things I wanted to say today, and uh, oh yeah... The Psychedelic Salon Quarterly. A couple of uh, podcasts ago, I announced the beginning of this project that Dean Haddock so kindly started. And in case you missed the original announcement, I'll, I'll just briefly repeat part of it now. The Psychedelic Salon Quarterly publishes peer-reviewed articles on the subject of psychedelics, including thoughtful scientific, psychological, historical, and sociological works that for conventional or ethical reasons may not be accepted by mainstream publications. The PSQ aims to facilitate a thoughtful and scientific dialogue on the utility of psychedelic substances through legitimate research and experience. And if you'd like to participate, uh, just surf over to psq.criticalmath.com for more details. That's psq.criticalmath.com. And uh, Dean tells me that he's already received our first submission. Uh, I also know that Matteo is working on a rather esoteric essay to submit. And uh, just the other day, Charlie Grobe said that he'd work something up as well. But uh, I don't want you to think that you've got to have some kind of a big credential to have your work considered. So if you've been uh, thinking about various aspects of the psychedelic experience that you may be able to uh, shed some of your own bright light upon... Well, uh, why wait? Start writing today, and uh, before you know it, you may be a published author in a peer-reviewed journal. Another announcement, uh, one that brings me great pleasure, is to uh, let you know that KMO's Sea Realm podcasts have been nominated for an award in the category of Culture and Arts in the annual People's Podcast Awards. 
And uh, if, like me, you're a big fan of KMOs, then you can do him a, a great service by going to www.podcastawards.com and vote for his program. So uh, let's all just take a minute or two out of our overly busy lives and uh, spend those few minutes in helping KMO, who's uh, done so much for all of us with his brilliant interviews. Finally, uh, I want to mention an email that came from Samantha, who says in part, and uh, don't worry, Samantha, I'm not going to reveal uh, any of your personal information. It's just the question you ask, because it's an important one, and uh, one that I hope over time we can all somehow figure out an answer to. So uh, here's part of what Samantha has to say. Hi, Lorenzo. I've been listening to your podcast for quite a while now, and I really appreciate that you're getting information out there, even if I don't agree with every speaker you've had. And uh, for what it's worth, Samantha, I don't agree with them all either. So uh, that's that's a good sign, I think, that we're uh, trying to think for ourselves a little bit. And she goes on. But what I'd really like to know is this. How do I get involved? Like a lot of people... I was raised in a society with a lot of bold-faced lies about psychedelics, and it wasn't until my mid-30s that I researched for myself and discovered how much of what I'd been given was total misinformation. I think the problem is that I mostly work in a vacuum. I seem to know far more consumers than creators, and I haven't really met a lot of people with the same sort of drive and passion that I have. So I want to get connected. I'd love to throw in and work with some other people and create positive and correct information to put out there for the world. So, any ideas or communities you could point me at? Well, hmm, here we are back at square one again. Uh, As you know, uh, I've talked about this on several occasions, but uh, frankly, I don't think I've been able to add much in the way of ideas to answer this question which is a question that's being asked every day by quite literally hundreds of thousands of people around the world who, like you and me, believe that uh, these psychedelic substances quite possibly hold the key to our species' long-term survival. And if we don't soon learn, uh, once again, how to integrate these magical medicines into our lives and our culture, we simply aren't going to be able to expand our thinking to the point it needs to be uh, if we're going to work ourselves out of the ecological mess we've created here on our home planet. But getting back to Samantha's question, uh, how do we find the others and connect with them? How do we do something of value to help the community? I guess uh, the first thing to say is that uh, once you do find one of the others, you'll most likely stay connected with them for a long time just as uh, Wild Bill and I have done, even though we live thousands of miles apart. And, you know, the same is true for other friends I've made at uh, various conferences and festivals throughout the years. For example, my friend Fernando, who happens to live in Italy, and who I also met in Palenque a decade ago, popped up at Burning Man in 2007, and uh, we reconnected as if no time had passed since we were last together. My point being that uh, the psychedelic experience is so powerful that Friends you make in association with these experiences, or even uh, just at conferences and only talking about the psychedelic experience, is enough to forge a a strong bond between you. Now, in a few weeks, I'll be meeting with a man uh, who I've, I've only talked with on the phone, but he's been involved with the same small psychedelic community for over 20 years now. And uh, I hope to be able to record some of our conversation and uh, play it here if he can give me some ideas that may help answer Samantha's question, which I suspect is your question as well. 
So for now, uh, all I have to go on is my own experience. You know, for most of my life, I was like you, living out on the edge, but not being able to talk with anyone about it, not even my closest friends. Then I went to a McKenna three-day workshop and met a few people, a couple of whom I'm still in contact with. And six months later, I attended a week-long conference, and there I met dozens of people who are now among my closest friends. Of course, uh, these friendships didn't just blossom on their own. We stayed in touch via email and uh, through mutual acquaintances. We exchanged ideas. We fought. And in some cases, we parted company for one reason or another, just like the rest of the world does. But there is uh, something about being friends with another psychonaut that makes things seem slightly different in some unspoken way. Well, I'm, I'm just rambling again now, so I guess the short answer to the question is uh, no, I, I really don't have anything new to say right now, but uh, for a long time I've thought that if our community had a, a place to meet in cyberspace, uh, well, that would be ideal, but... You know, there are a lot of problems involved with that uh, due to the nature of laws of uh, various countries and the fact that you can't always keep people from uh, doing or saying something that might get all the rest of the participants in such a virtual world into trouble. But uh, perhaps something on a small, invitation-only basis might work. I've never mentioned this before, but uh, the Psychedelic Salon existed for about five years before my first podcast. What I did was to set up an extremely secure voice channel on the net. That was back when I was still in geek mode. And uh, six or seven of us got together for a couple of hours each week and uh, just had some great conversations. And we were in all different parts of the country, a couple overseas actually. But we all knew one another and uh, we were very sure that no one could listen into our conversations. Even though we weren't talking about anything that was illegal, uh, just knowing that our conversation was private gave us uh, much more leeway when we wanted to discuss something. So perhaps uh, we need to have thousands of these little groups meeting online until we figure out a safe way to interconnect them all. But hey, uh, my ideas are kind of old and tattered now, so uh, maybe it's time for everybody to start speaking out and... uh, and then people will find you. Uh, that's what I've done, and uh, an amazing number of people have found me. So, uh, in fact, uh, one final thing that I, I want to do today is to uh, say hello to one of our fellow saloners who uh, found me somehow. I don't know his name, only that he's a taxi driver on Maui. And uh, he sent one of his friends to meet me at the last of our little salons that was held in Venice Beach this past Friday. So now uh, I've got two new friends in the psychedelic community. Philip and his taxi-driving friend on Maui. And I send peace, love, and light to you both. And uh, I send it to all of our fellow saloners, uh, especially you islanders in another part of the Pacific who are about to have a very mystic celebration in a couple days. And uh, I'll be with you guys in spirit. You can count on that. And now, as always, I'll close this podcast by saying that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are available for your use under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And that's also where you'll find the program notes for these podcasts. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. (laughs) 